Uh, good morning. How are you guys doing? What a beautiful morning it's been already, right? The worship was so good and just inviting us into the presence of God and it's been a beautiful morning. So we're continuing our scripture talk series, Voices, and today we're going to talk about recognizing the source of some of the voices that we have. And um, if you're like me, which you might not be like me, but if you are like me, um, it feels loud in today's culture. And when I say it feels loud, I'm not necessarily talking just about volume. I'm talking about the fact that things are just very prominent, right? You know, right now I'm getting notifications on my phone about breaking news. There's always things that are just popping out in front of me, whether it be the radio or phone. Things just seem to be really trying to grab our attention all the time. Different voices, different things that are being emphasized in our life. And, you know, there's things, there's influencers, and uh, there's news outlets, of course, with the breaking news, and, um, you know, there are political and social commentators and those sort of things, and advice people and sports, it just keeps going, right? And do you ever notice when you put down your phone, then there's like a ding or there's a notification that starts to buzz the second you put it down? Like, it feels like that, and I actually think our phones are designed that way to get your attention again when you put it down. Um, Pastor Dave mentioned it, I think, last week. He was talking about how, you know, there are voices through the media and different things, and we know that, um, you know, be it um, CBC or the National Post, they have a different viewpoint that they come forward with. And, um, you know, the Toronto Sun versus Toronto Star, of course, and, of course, in, in our friends to the south here, you know, Fox and CNN, they all have different viewpoints, and they're all kind of coming to get our attention. So for me... Even though I'm interested in, you know, political and social commentary and different things, I sometimes just need a break. Is anyone like me in here? Sometimes you just need a little break from it. And what I need a break for, I'm going to relax. Uh, sometimes I just go to, like, sports. I, I like sports, okay? I really love sports, love all sports. And I'll just kind of go to sports because I just feel like this is just competition. It's, you know, two teams against each other, and it just seems kind of very innocent and relaxing to me. And I think most of the time it is. But if you've been watching sports lately and there's commercial break, what are some of the main commercials you see? Almost every commercial is a gambling commercial, Pastor Dave, who just said that, and other of you are nodding in agreement. It just seems constantly, um, whether it's you know our favorite sports stars of yesteryear or our current sports stars, some of your favorite athletes and some of my favorite athletes, they are coming and just beckoning us to say that, hey, you know what's going to enhance your watching experience? If you bet all this money on your favorite team or your favorite player. And it's happening all the time. And it's actually been called a tsunami of advertising. And this has happened since Ontario became the only province in Canada to open up to both government-sponsored and privatized gambling companies. And these athletes, like I said, your favorite ones and my favorite ones, they're getting paid a lot of money, a lot of money, to endorse these different gambling websites. And let's look at another country. It's been a big problem in the UK, actually. And uh, I was reading this article just this past week, and the UK actually had classified 1.4 million in their country as gambling addicts in 2021. 1.4 million people they had characterized as having a gambling addiction. And a couple of years before that, in 2019, 
Another study in the UK classified an additional 55,000 children between the ages of 11 and 16 as, as being problem gamblers. 55,000 children between 11 and 16. This is from a CBC News article. And it does, sadly, it, it does get worse. Um, the UK began examining this, right? The number of gambling um, addictions, or who would classify as problem gamblers as well. They began examining this. And some of the parents of these children, they were really urging this on. And the UK found that on average, this is very sad, 409 people take their own lives in suicide related to problem gambling. It's tragic, and it's prevalent all over the place. So the UK, they actually decided to change its gambling regulations, and I'll read it here. The UK decided that if a celebrity has a strong appeal to children or young persons, they would actually be banned from commercial, from commercial promoting gambling. So effectively, this article says that banning, that effectively bans all sports, TV, and social media stars from appearing in a gambling advertisement. Right? It's a good move by the UK, in my opinion, um, because these people's voice is very influential. Right? They speak to many people, and in particular to a lot of young men and children who can be really influenced. And what I'm saying to you is, you know, we have to be mindful of the voices that are coming to us. Not that that person is a bad person or anything, but they do have an entity behind them designed to take your money, right? Designed to tell you that just giving your money is going to make the game watching even better, but it's having some really difficult consequences. So there are voices, and there are sources and, um, behind those voices, and they have different motivations. And, and just as I say this, as I'm going to go on, if, if you're having an issue with uh, gambling, because it's so readily and easily accessible here, uh, we have a program like Freedom Session that touches on some of those. Uh, I invite you, this is just week two, it will be coming out this Wednesday, so if you do have an issue with that, that's a good place for you. But we're going to look at voices and the source of some of the voices in our lives. But today, though, if you're able, would you stand with me? We're going to read our passage to ponder here. And it's here. So let's read it together. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The word of the Lord for us today. You may be seated. So, it's a really good passage to ponder. And you know, as we say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And it, I love in that passage there in, in verse 14, I believe it says, it says, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceptive, right? It seems good, as Pastor Dave says often, which you like, he says, it overpromises and it underdelivers, right? It's deceptive. So let's look at a voice within a voice. We're going to look at an example here, and we're going to look at Caiaphas, the high priest. And he's the high priest in the year that Jesus um, went to the cross. And we're going to look and we're going to recognize a voice within a voice. Sometimes we can be saying things and someone else could be speaking through us. 
We're going to look at uh, John chapter 11, start at verse 45, read it for you. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man, they're talking about Jesus. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and nation. There's a fear that if Jesus continues to go on, the Romans will interact and they'll uh, take away the, the Jewish temple and the whole nation. And verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. Listen to what Caiaphas says. He says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That's good, right? Caiaphas is saying something, and his whole mindset is that I have to protect the Jewish people. Christ has come in here, and he is, Jesus has come in here, and he's, he's made, um, he's, he's created turmoil, so much turmoil that the Roman authorities are going to actually move in. They could destroy the Jewish temple. It's better that he dies, Jesus, Caiaphas says, than the whole nation perish. But Caiaphas is saying more than he realizes, isn't he? Right? He's not realizing that his words are actually prophesying the fact that Jesus is going to die, but not just for the Jewish nation or not just for that moment, but he's dying for the sins of the world. It's amazing. Right? So prophecy, and Pastor Dave mentioned prophecy, I think, when he's praying. Prophecy, the word, it really just means it's to speak a word directly imparted to the speaker by God. It's a voice within a voice. Right? It's God speaking through someone. And it's usually a word that's not known, not usually at all, it's a word that's not known ahead of time, right? Prophecy is, is outside the control of the speaker. It comes from above and outside our human faculties, right? You know, it's just spoken to a particular people at a particular time through a certain person. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. In, in recent years, many people have claimed to speak for God and they prophesied about things like, you know, election outcomes and world events and the date of Jesus' return, and they've been wrong. What do you think when that happens? People who are good people, I, I believe so. And they prophesied about these things, prophesied, and they were wrong. So it wasn't actually prophetic then, was it? Right? And here's the thing, they might have been reading up on things, they might have cared very passionately about something, they might have really had some really strong feelings and, and felt like they had advanced knowledge of the outcome, but they didn't. And prophecy doesn't have advanced knowledge of the outcome, right? Prophecy, I can't say, um, come see me tomorrow morning at 9.30, and I'm going to tell you a prophetic word. I, I, I can't say that, I don't know. Prophecy comes outside, outside of me, from God, through, through me. Caiaphas doesn't know what he's saying. He's saying something way bigger than he can imagine. And we have to be honest, even if we trust people a lot and they're learned and, and we, we really like them, anyone can make a guess about an election outcome. Anyone can make a guess about a sporting event, right? 
When did the Leafs last win the cup? Like 50 years ago. It's a long time. But every year we're like, this is the year, right? <laughs> this is the year. This is the year. So 50 years ago. So we, we've gotten one right collectively out of 50. Our, our prophetic score is 2%. 2%. That's not, a, that's not a very strong prophetic score. All right. The whole point of prophecy is about revelation, right? The, the, the hope in the prophetic is that um, people will see Jesus, and in light of seeing him, they'll change their life. They'll follow him. That's the whole example and the hope of prophecy. So let, let's look at our main teaching text for today. We're going to look at the Apostle Peter, who I love Peter a lot. Um, I just love Peter a lot. He makes a lot of mistakes, and we like to highlight them, and I might highlight one or so here today. But he, he does a lot of good things as well. So we're going to look at Matthew 16. I'm going to read this whole passage, and then we'll break it up as we, as we continue on. So, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It wasn't time yet. From that time on, we continue on. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Did God just speak through Peter and then the enemy just spoke through Peter in like six or four verses or something like that? We're going to look at it. Okay, let's look at the source of some of our topics. We're going to use this here. Let's look at the source. Sometimes the source of voices in us and voices through us are God. So let's look at that. And ultimately, as we said, God's voice, what it really does, it illuminates the mind by pointing us to truth. Right? When we look at it in that first passage in, in verse 15, you know, Jesus asks this question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's always amazing when God in the flesh asks a question, Right? He knows the answer. He wants to draw something out of us. He wants to know what we are thinking. Um, and Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right? And he blessed them. And Jesus says, not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. So this time, Jesus, he hasn't fully revealed himself yet. Right? There's been miracles. Uh, he's fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 in the passage. Just earlier in the passage, he's reminding them of that. Um, he has been healing uh, the disabled. He has been healing people who are near death, um, enabling people to see. 
He's been ex- uh, exemplifying his, his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and how we apply it today. He's done all these things. But it still wasn't really clear that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. And Peter is the first one to recognize it. Peter says, no, <laughs> you're, you're not just an amazing teacher. You're not just doing some miracles somehow. You, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, right? And Jesus acknowledges and said, hey, Peter, you did right, right? God, the Father, reveal that to you, right? And so um, he, he, he gets this revelation, Peter does, and Jesus, we know he's the truth, right? He points, God the Father points Peter to the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And Jesus really, Peter recognizes the fact that he's the source of hope and peace and joy. He's strength, right? And Peter realizes this, and he says, boom. Um, not only you're, you're that, right? I want to follow you because of this reason. So God's voice gives that to Peter. And then we come up here to verse 18 in Matthew 16, and um, Jesus says, you know, he says, and I tell you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates, of, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Right? And he says he'll give them the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And this is really important because God's voice, it really compels us to respond. Right? If we're encountered with truth, it's hard to just recognize something that's so true and so powerful and to sit back and say, well, that's good. Boy, Jesus, yeah, he really is the Messiah. And just kind of sit back there and not do anything. That's a, if we had to have that reaction, that shows that we actually haven't really taken that truth in. Because it changes your whole life. It changes your whole outlook. It might change your whole direction of your life. So God's always points to truth, right? And it really necessitates a response. It makes us co-laborers or partners with Christ. So Jesus, in that command, he tasks Peter. He says, Peter, you're going to help to build the church. Right? Because Peter's proclamation is, um, is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Right? And our Catholic brothers and sisters, they, they take that verse to say that that's the institution of the papal office. Right? That Jesus is somehow building on the rock of Peter. But that's not what is really going on here, in my opinion. Peter recognizes that Jesus is the cornerstone. But Peter's going to have a special role to play. He's going to be among the first apostles and disciples to help continue what the foundation that Christ has laid. So the, the proclamation of Christ as the, the Messiah is what Peter will build on. And Peter says this, even in his first letter. He, he calls Jesus the cornerstone. He says, the stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's the foundational piece of the church, God's family. So Peter plays an important role. The apostles play an important role, but they build on the foundation of Jesus, right? They're like a wise builder building on the rock of Christ. But here's the idea. We're encountered with truth, and then God's is both our motivation to work and to excel, and he gives us purpose that our whole life we have a task ahead of us to be co-laborers with him. But here, you can recognize um, God's voice because it always points to Jesus, right? As we've been talking about this throughout the time. It always points to Jesus. Jesus is the word. And so if you're ever having a thought or you're wondering where this is coming from, ask yourself, does it reiterate the truths found in scripture? Right? Does it affirm Christ and his sovereignty and his sufficiency? Does it drive you towards a deeper dependency on him? That's, those are things that help you recognize that that's God's voice. Let's look at the voice of our great enemy, the source, our great enemy. The enemy's voice, we find out it's a trap. It's a trap. Right in Matthew 16, verse 21 and 23, you know, Jesus is going on explaining 
that he, he will die or resurrect on the third day, uh, but he's going to give himself over into the hands of the elders of the chief priests. And Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Then he goes, he says, you, you only have the concerns of, you don't have the concerns of God. You have the concerns of just human concerns. We're going to talk about that. Have you noticed that there is like a, a forcefulness in our culture today? Right? There's like a heavy-handed my way or the highway. Does it feel that way? Things seem like uh, we have to take everything into our own hands. We have to be controlling and demanding. And here's the challenge. We could feel something really strongly. We could be really passionate about it. And it might not be the voice of God who's encouraging us to feel something so passionate. It may be, but it may not be. Peter feels very strongly about Jesus going to the cross, does he not? Is Peter even having like a bad thought? Yes and no. <laughs> right? He's motivated, I think, out of good reason. We'll talk about maybe his possible motivations. But he would be doing something that would be very dangerous. Remember, just a few minutes ago, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, I have a task for you. You're going to play an important role in helping to build up the church. And then, a few moments later, Peter's own protests are spurred on by the evil one. And they're preventing, they would be preventing the church to come into existence in the first place. Like, do you get that? He had this special role, and then he thinks it's good, and that would actually stop his special role from happening if he got his way. The enemy's voice is a trap. It's a trap, right? Um, and if things look like a trap, you probably wouldn't fall into it, would you? The enemy's voice is so tough. Peter, uh, Jesus talks about a stumbling block. We, sometimes you get this idea like, oh, okay, you kind of tripped up. A stumbling block is something that is designed, that was designed to trip you up so that you would fall and never get back up again. And if you were able to manage to get back up again, you'd be so maimed that you don't have any strength to carry on. It's a big deal, a stumbling block. So the enemy's voice, it might, it sometimes, you know, as, as, as Christ followers, we might think the enemy's voice does come in um, in this voice of opposition, right? You just have like this big roadblock that's telling you not to go and, and you know you, and you feel strongly that it's your purpose to go forward. That could be the case. Um, but the enemy's voice could also even come into the, your own thoughts of something like this, like, I cannot allow this to happen. I have to exert my control and will over this outcome. I have to go in there and make it work out the way that I see it work out. That could be the enemy's voice for you, actually. Peter rebukes Jesus. Oh, boy. <laughs> Students don't... They don't do that at that time. They don't do that. The student doesn't rebuke his rabbi. Not publicly, not even privately. Peter does this right in front of everybody. And he just said he was God in the flesh. Oh my goodness. I love Peter. Remember that. Peter has what Jesus says are merely human concerns. And sometimes human points of view, the way we see things they can actually be reactive and they can be very unhelpful. They can be very detrimental sometimes from our viewpoint. And God's point of view is often not our first response 
that kind of shows. Sometimes our, just our trigger response, that might not be God's point of view. His thoughts are not always our thoughts. Right? Sometimes our initial reaction could be spurred on by the enemy. So remember, God's point of view, it comes from outside of us, right? It transcends time and moment. <clears throat> but let's be fair to Peter here, right? There's some possible outcomes. Peter could be um, concerned about his friend Jesus, right? Why should Jesus die? Why should he perish so willingly? Right? That's not right. That's his friend who he cares for so much, and that could not be right. Um, Peter could also be worried about the outcome of this, though, right? If, if Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah is supposed to overthrow the Romans from Peter's point of view. The Messiah should overthrow the authorities that are in control that are oppressing them. So what would we do without him? And let me give this as another possible possibility. What if Peter was concerned about losing his own special status in the church? What if? That's a natural concern. What if he was concerned that this crucial role that he was going to play to help build up the family of God, what if he loses that if Jesus dies? Sometimes the enemy's voice can be spurred on by things that we're concerned about, like loss, the loss of a relationship, the loss of position, losing out on influence, the loss of security. And you come to find out that the enemy's voice is really fear-based, losing something. God's voice is reverence-based. It's the same word, but it has totally different connotations. Right? If we feel like something is going to be taken from us, sometimes the enemy can be using those things for us to react in a certain way and react in a way that could actually be more detrimental to us. Many times, if we fear losing security, position, influence, we don't always act the correct way. And then we could be using those fears to kind of spur on to say, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you rebuke the master? We have to be mindful of acting out of fear because we'll fall into a trap. It's deceptive, right? It's a trap that was set for Jesus, but it's also a trap that was set for Peter too. <clears throat> I love what 2 Timothy says. Paul, his inspired words from God writing to Timothy, he says, God didn't give us a, spear, a spirit of fear or timidity, he says that God gives a spirit of power and love and self-control, right? The enemy's voice can actually add fuel to our fears and to our anxieties. And in Matthew 13, it says that it actually can help us, it, it, it prevents us from being fruitful, it makes us unfruitful. And just quickly, in, in Matthew, Jesus is talking about um, these seeds that fell along, among the thorn. He was making this analogy of when we come to spread the word of God, the, the, the gospel, spreading the good news. And he is laying the foundation by spreading the gospel. And he gives lots of different analogies for different types of seed. But one of which he said is, seed that fell among thorns. And it grew up and it choked the plants, he said. And then he goes on to understand, to describe that the seed that, uh, that was choked out by the thorns these are the worries of life. The anxieties and the things that we fret about. Like our health, right? We, f- we fret about death. We fret about um, money all the time, <laughs> right? We fret about how is it going to work out if, what if this happens, what if that doesn't happen. We have all these concerns. And Jesus is saying these concerns and these anxieties, they can actually work to make us unfruitful. We can't let the word of God fall into our hearts. Right now, I'll be honest with you. Some of you, it's hard for even hear this right now because you're concerned about your job prospects, your health prospects. 
your relational best. Right now, you could be dealing with that. And Jesus says it's there, and the enemy almost uses it as a tactic, the concerns and the anxieties and the worries of life to choke out the word from our hearts and make us unfruitful. Um, in, some, in some translations, it says anxieties when it says worries, right? And anxieties, um, we know, and we're talk, coming up on um, Bell Let's Talk, uh, Let's Talk Day this week, and we feel it, right? Canadians are very anxious, right, across the country. And every one of us deals with anxiety to different degrees. What I come to find out in that Matthew text, though, is anxiety's actually been around for a long time. <laughs> it says it's, Jesus says it's um, the worries of this life or the worries of this age, some, uh, some translations say, or the worries of this world. They were dealing with anxiety then, thousands of years ago. And we're dealing with it now. Maybe we actually just have better um, terminology and better ways and strategies to help deal with it. Um, but anxieties are, are common. That's the, that's the overarching feeling of the world, is anxiety. And Jesus is saying, you know what? These worries, these anxieties, they can be used as a tactic to limit our effectiveness. So let's be aware of that. We're coming up. We're, we're, we're ending very soon. So just to be aware that the enemy can use it, and it's a trap, can use our anxieties. Let's look at this other source, this final source. This is our voice, right? We looked at God's voice, the enemy's voice, and let's look at our voice. And this is a story you tell yourself about yourself. What, what do you say to yourself in your head? What do you tell yourself? Um, you know, we probably all vary on the spectrum of like healthy self-image, right? And, and probably depending on the moment, we, we, we go back and forth. But that's something we all kind of have to deal with. But here's something I think where it's very similar. What, what do you tell yourself after you have a really regrettable moment when you fail? I think that's something we all struggle with. What do you tell yourself? And we come to find out here, and we're, again, we're going to look at Peter's, Peter's life here. We rarely tell ourselves the truth after we fail. Sometimes it's hard to tell ourselves the truth in any circumstance. But I think in the moment where we fail, it's even tougher. So we're going to look at Luke 22, and we're going to look at Peter again. And we're going to look at his, um, the moment where he's about to deny Christ. So, this is Jesus speaking. He says, um, Simon, Simon, Satan, which is, which is Simon, Simon is Peter's other name. Uh, Satan has asked you to sift all of you as wheat. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you know me. Then let's just fast forward to verse 60. And it's the moment of his denial. Peter replied, as he's being confronted by the people around him, if, if he knows, if he's one of the followers of the way, one of the followers of Jesus. And Peter replied, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he's speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. That's a sad verse. How do you think Peter felt during that moment? <clears throat> what was the story he was telling himself about himself? Um, sometimes our, our really harsh inner critic 
says we are beyond repair. It's this self-condemning voice that says we're irredeemable. Um, We are unlovable. We're unworthy. Um, It tells us we're not capable. And these are some of the thoughts that really plague our minds after we fail. And I I said this once before when I was up here. But, um, you know, these thoughts, they're like an echo chamber. And they just reverberate in your mind. And it's loud. And it's hard to push them away. And they actually tend to exaggerate like negative behavior and thinking. And we can get fixated on our failures and our negative thoughts. It's a really unkind way to be to yourself. Um, And ask yourself sometimes when these thoughts are going in your mind, would you say the same things that you're saying in your head about yourself? Would you say that to a friend after they failed? Would you call a friend those names? Would you have no grace whatsoever for a friend? That can happen to us. And I I love what Jesus says here. He he knew Peter was going to fail. He knew it, right? He says to Peter, he says, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Have you ever seen what that looks like, sifting like wheat? It's this process where they take these whips and, and strains of wheat, and they beat it, and they beat it, and they beat it, and they beat it. And the whole point is to get um, the useless parts out, the parts that won't have any good use, and they just want to toss it. And then they toss it in this thing to sift it, right? And it's, like a, and it's being tossed around, tossed around, until just what remains is the only edible parts, not the chaff that's un- unedible, Right? That's what sifting like wheat is. And Sarah M. Wells, she, this is writer, she says this. She describes the process. She says, this is what Jesus um, is saying. Simon, Satan wants to, uh, has asked to beat you with a whip until the useless part of you, useless parts of you all fall away. And then Satan's going to toss you around a while in a big basket to let loose the remaining chaff. She says this. She says, Jesus might have well said, Simon, this is going to hurt like hell. It's going to feel like hell. But Jesus said in that moment, though, he said, I prayed that you won't lose your faith through all of that. You're going to go through this horrendous experience. It's going to be painful. It's going to leave you battered and bruised. And I pray you won't lose your faith through all of it. And then he says this. He says, when you turn back, he says, you're going to turn back. And when you do, strengthen your brothers and your sisters. Strengthen the people around you. He encourages Peter to do that. That's actually what we need to do to ourselves, <laughs> to say to ourselves, you can pray after you've failed. Lord, let this not shake my faith. You can pray, Lord, even after this moment, let me be an encouragement to someone else who has failed and who has had regrettable moments or to encourage someone who hasn't. And I love this in First John, as we're coming up to close. Christian 3.20, it says this, it says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Your heart might condemn you, but God, he doesn't in Christ Jesus. He knows. And we want to look at this as, as, as we're finishing up, some very practical ways. What Peter does in his latter years, so we, we fast forward again. And like I said, I love Peter. I really... <laughs> When I get to heaven, I want to have a great conversation with Peter. I'll, I'll, we'll be fixated on Jesus, but I want to spend some time talking to Peter. I'm going to ask him if he, um, when he you know, when he, in, the, in the garden, when they were coming for Jesus, and he took the sword and he sliced off that guy's ear. I'm going to say, did you miss? <laughs> or you're that, just that precise, I don't know. I'm going to have a good conversation with Peter. 
But Peter, in his latter years, he writes in his first letter in some really practical steps here. First thing he says in verse 6 in 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Underline humble yourselves. Maybe Peter writes from a perspective of the person who wasn't that humble when he was rebuking Jesus in that moment. In verse 7, he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Give over your anxieties. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need you to take this burden. We cannot do it on our own. In verse 8, he says, be alert and of sober mind. There's a lot to say there. That's a sermon in and of itself. But there's something about sobriety and being serious and not being... um, and not having a carelessness in our mind that helps us to see situations as they are. He says to be alert, be watchful and sober-minded. And he says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's this picture of, these, of this mouth of a lion that's closing down on you. The, the teeth are coming down on you, and you're using every strength, every bit of strength you have to prevent it from happening. Some of you feel like that now. Some of you do. And verse 9, Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Don't lose your faith. Don't lose your confidence in God, your confidence in what God can do. He says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. You're not the only one. Isn't that so good? Right? Because that's the thing that we think we're the only ones dealing with this. We're the only ones struggling. We're the only ones that are having to go through these trying times. And that's a tactic I believe the enemy can use to say that you're alone. You're not alone. You have a family of believers undergoing the same kinds of things. In verse 10 again, he says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ says, after you have suffered a little while, you, you will suffer. After you suffer a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Right? Peter says that we can actually come and approach the throne of grace after we've suffered for a little while. You want to stand with me as we pray, as we close? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you bringing your praise and glory. Lord, you are the one who sees us and you're the one who understands us. You understand what we go through. Father, you know the things that influence us and drive us, dear God, and the things that motivate us. And sometimes we're uh, motivated by good, godly things. And sometimes, Lord, it's not always the best things that motivate us to act. So, Father, we just pray that we'll be attuned to your voice and to your spirit's leading. Help us to tune out of the distractions, Lord. Help us have times of just um, silence and solitude to actually practice moments of being alone while we at the same time practice moments of community, dear God, where we get to gather as the Lord's people, both in large settings like this and in small group settings as well. Um, Father, help us to be aware of the evil one and his tactics, not to fixate on them, but to be aware that sometimes they can work to inflame our anxieties. Help us to look at you with all reverence and fear, a godly fear that drives us to just follow you and commit our ways to you. Lord, help us to be kind to ourselves, Lord. The one who's struggling with that today, help them to be kind to themselves. Lord, help us to approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Lord, I pray that for all my friends today, all those hearing it online, all those in this room. We pray that the message will help their faith not to fail, dear God, that they can trust you, and that we can turn back, and we can strengthen our brothers and sisters. Lord, we, we love you, and we trust you, dear God. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.